This is Lori Adams Brown, and you are listening to the A World of Difference podcast. Thank you so much for joining today. This is our very first episode. I want to start by giving you a little background on what I hope to do with this podcast. I thought it would be good for us to go back and begin with the journey that led me here today. I recently moved from Southeast Asia to the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley in fact, after living and working in Indonesia for 10 years and in Singapore for the last 10 years. I grew up in Venezuela to parents who left the U.S. to go make a difference in the world and raised me to do so too. I grew up both with and around a lot of great people who taught me to love and see the world and the different kinds of people that live in it as all unique and worthy of listening to. I also learned that we all have so much in common. And one of those commonalities is our ability to make a world of difference, especially when we learn from each other how to do it well. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time. And I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership. And it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This first season is going to be about helping in hard times. Because let's face it, during COVID-19 pandemic here in 2020, all of us are going through hard times. But they're not all the same kind of hard times. I don't think that the pandemic is necessarily the same for everyone. But what is the same is that it's just hard. It's hard for all of us. So I am going to be having guests that are going to be talking to us about how to help people during hard times. Because if there's anything we know from helping others, it's that it can actually help us to have hope as well when we help other people. So I am going to be bringing on guests from my family because I have a family of helpers. <laughs> and uh, so you're going to get to hear from my husband, who is a helper by nature. If you know the Enneagram at all, he's an Enneagram 2, which is the helper. And um, and then I have a mom who is a nurse and has helped lots of people, started clinics overseas and um, was uh, working in border health in New Mexico and still even in retirement is doing a lot of work on the border to help immigrants. And um, you're going to get to hear from my older brother, who's um, a community advocate and a professor and a teacher and a musician and just helps people in all different kinds of ways. And then my dad has also had just a long career now that he's retired is still even helping um, to do things both in Venezuela and in 
Thailand and he's been a chaplain in the jails in Las Cruces for a while and currently is working in hospice helping people as they transition um, from life into death. So just a lot of ways to help people and you're going to get to hear from all these different perspectives of what you can do during this COVID-19 pandemic um, where it's just hard and learn how to help people during hard times. So I hope you enjoy this season. My first guest is someone very near and dear to me, and it's my husband, Jason Adams Brown. He currently leads Echo Compassion here in the Bay Area. He has 20 years of nonprofit work experience, both in Indonesia for 10 years and in Singapore for the last 10 years. He led a community development organization in Indonesia that also did disaster relief in the 2004 Indonesian tsunami that hit Sumatra. He graduated from high school at the International School Bangkok. Um, where his parents were living and working in Thailand. He also lived in India younger as a child. He has a bachelor's degree from Auburn University in psychology. He has two master's degrees in intercultural studies and also in marriage and family therapy. He's fluent in Indonesian and English, um, also speaks a little Malay and Thai and a little bit here and there of a few other languages and is really great at accents and voices um, because he has a lot of acting experience back from his time at the International School Bangkok. So welcome to the show, my husband, Jason Adams Brown. Thank you for joining me as my very first guest. I feel honored and special (laughs) out of all the people you could choose in the world you chose me (laughs) you you throw up noises from everybody else (laughs) that's right (laughs) it's a beautiful mid-morning here in the south bay in california a lot colder than i'm comfortable with having been raised in the tropics (laughs) like in the summer (laughs) (laughs) in the summer in july it's just the fact that she's in the shade like she stepped out in the sun she would suddenly be warm true but i have a cup of coffee and a blanket and a hoodie and socks and i'm outside in july <laughs> oh my gosh oh my you should see her when we walk through the refrigerated section of a grocery store <laughs> it's her not lips kidding. turn purple <laughs> oh my well thank you for agreeing i know you have a busy schedule so um you guys are in for a treat today because jason is um he's just one of the most helpful people he wants to help others he's really made his life about being a helper to others and he has a lot of experience around the world and helping people so I just wanted to start kind of from the beginning with you um what was it like to grow up as Jason (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh uh what was it like to grow up as Jason um so as a kid I was like uh I mean I'm an extrovert now still but like I was super extroverted um always wanted to be the life of the party, always wanted to have lots of events going on, always wanted to have several different groups of friends, Um, you know, had no problem bringing all those groups together. I mean, that was just a lot of what I did as a kid. Um, But I went through a season, uh, a super awkward season, to say it, like in the, yeah, super awkward season. May not be, it's like probably worse than that. A very challenging, difficult season where um, when I was growing up in India, because uh, I was there as a young child, I lived on a college campus um, with other Indian students because my parents were, were professors there. 
and there was like no other kids around to play with and to hang out with. And so all my interactions were like with Indian college students. So uh, after that period of time, like I came back to the States and I was like super awkward. Like I had a British Indian accent. We were in Georgia and like I had the social skills of like an Indian college student. So the way I related to people wasn't like kids my age at, at nine years old. And so like I just annoyed everybody. I was that super awkward kid <laughs> that was like extremely extroverted, but like annoyed everybody. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's giving you way more than... No, it's good because it, it's just a reminder that... So your parents were American citizens and you looked like you were from the States, but you were living in India, which it had some British influence, so it's not like they hadn't seen people that might have looked like you, but just that whole experience um, of what we call a third culture kid. So if you guys aren't familiar with third culture kid, we'll probably get into that in another one of our series, but uh, maybe you can explain that. What does it mean to be a third culture kid growing up? Yeah, a third culture kid... Um, I mean, do we need to find it? Is yeah, yeah, yeah. the definition, uh, I mean, this is my definition of third culture kid, right? But it's typically someone who has um, spent significant amount of their growing up in another place from their passport country. So it's kind of like they have a third culture. So they don't really fit in in their passport country. They're, they're what some people would say is their home country, even though they might not feel at home there. And then the place that they are living in they don't really feel completely at home there because they're not they don't maybe don't look like they're from that place so there's kind of this third culture that's created um, because of that and there's a lot of us around the world like that in fact you're like that I'm like that our kids are like that <laughs> we know a lot of people like that so yeah so it's like you don't you know you come back to the US everybody thinks like oh you're from the US you should fit in but you don't necessarily and then you go back to the place where you grew up which I actually grew up in India and Thailand mostly Thailand I go back to Thailand and there's so many things about it that I feel so much more at home when I'm there. Um, but obviously I don't look like I'm from Thailand, so I don't completely fit in there either. Yeah. And so we're here in the Silicon Valley in California and um, we have people that are, I mean, have kind of lived the life Jason's lived in the opposite direction. So we have a lot of friends from India um, who are living in the U.S. and um, have those same experiences in the reverse. And so... Um, it, it is a very unique experience. So would you say, because this is a podcast about people being different and also making a difference. And so, um, what was it like to grow up feeling different for you? Um, you know, I think there, when I was younger, I really didn't like it. Like I really thought I just wanted to be like that normal kid. Like, you know, you always look at something else. The grass is always greener on the other side, right? And so I think I thought when I was younger, there was a period of time where I was like, I just wanted to be quote unquote normal mm -hmm. and like could relate to other people. Yeah. Um, but as I got older, man, I love this. Like I feel like a, a big piece that, um, there's so many different aspects of this being a TCK for me personally. But one of them is I always feel like I am more quickly to recognize people who um, could possibly be left out or that are different in the group yeah um like marginalized or marginalized or just like you know that you can i can immediately recognize okay this is being communicated to the group but that person is probably missing out on what they're saying yeah because it's not being said in a way that that person is really going to relate to or understand so just yeah i just feel like i'm more heightened around that sort of stuff mm -hmm. but always wanting to make sure um, everybody feels included and that's i think that's a, a um something that that growing up like that that's impacted me yeah 
Um, so you got to see the world through the eyes of um, people in India as a child and then through the eyes of people who are, um, you grew up around in Thailand who were Thai and then you also went to international school. So what would you say that was like for you in terms of learning to see the world through the lens of eyes of different kinds of people? Yeah, gosh, what a big question. I mean, yeah, we, at, in the middle school and high school that I went to and even the late part of elementary was an international school where there was people from all over the world um and so I've yeah just having that experience of like uh having friends from everywhere like so many different countries um I, I absolutely love that but I don't think I recognized until later that there were some things um well I'll, there's so many things around I'll, I'll highlight this one like it, it wasn't till it was later in high school that um, it hit me that racism still existed. Um, now, obviously, I'm a white person, so if I was probably a person of color, I probably would have experienced that younger going somewhere or something like that, and, mm-hmm. and I, I probably would have been well aware of that. Especially that moment in Georgia would have been a lot worse. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, even most, you know, most kids that at a fairly early age, they still see it somewhere I recognize that that's still alive and well but I thought it was all in the history until I you know did a quick trip back to um, visit some relatives uh, in high school in Alabama and yeah heard a number of people using the n-word to refer to to black people Um, and I was just shocked and um, angry and yeah that was a big shock because I you know just thought I mean if we were racist at my international school I mean, everybody's from different places. You're not going to have very many friends. And, um, yeah, so I think that was a, something that was a, was a shock to me, um, having grown up in international school. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm, I'm interested in taking this conversation to uh, when you went to college and then you went to grad school to prepare for a life of working back in Asia again to give um, a lot of help to people in places where um, you could make a difference. And so um, at what point did you know that you wanted your life to be about making a difference in the world? Or was that more of a process for you? I mean, I think it definitely was a process, but I can remember even as a little kid having big dreams um, I mean, there was, <laughs> there was a time when I was just, a, um, you know, seven, eight years old in India, and I can remember feeling very strongly that God was calling me to go into, like, missions overseas one day as a missionary, even at that young age. And um, so, yeah, I think I always had this, you know, aspirations or desire, like, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to, you know, I want to do something I want to do something big at that um so I think it was pretty young um but in terms of like um what it was and how that looked I mean you know even though I had that at a young age like later on in like junior high and high school I didn't have any big aspirations probably at that point at that point it was just man I wanted to be liked by everybody I wanted to date a lot of girls <laughs> it's weird to say to your wife but yeah I mean I was more interested in like girls and being popular and hanging out with my friends and just you know having yeah. a good time yeah. Um, but definitely, even as a young kid, that happened, but kind of gets burned out at you and testosterone and puberty hits, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you ultimately somehow figured that out and kind of solidified that you wanted to not necessarily make a life where you were just making a bunch of money and living for yourself, but where you wanted to spend your life to help others. And so that ultimately led you to your first you know, job out of grad school where you worked, you kind of did some NGO work in Indonesia and <clears throat> that took various forms, but I'm interested in kind of camping out on the moment of the tsunami that happened in 2004 that mm. hit Indonesia. So um, maybe just walk us through um, what that early moment was like for you, like when the tsunami hit and then kind of following up with that, what your job and life looked like for the next few months. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. How did my life change uh, after the tsunami, and how did that look? Right, that I mean, it was December twenty six, two thousand four. Um, yeah, I would say our lives changed pretty dramatically. I mean, it seems like everything came about uh, that tsunami work right then. Um, it was an incredible time because here was this great opportunity to to serve and help a lot of people that had been absolutely. Uh, devastated. Um, we had actually lived in the city of Banda Aceh for uh, nine months back in 2000, which was a few years before the tsunami. So we actually had some relationships with people um, in the city. And so just a couple of days after the tsunami, as soon as they were allowing foreigners to go in into the area, into the province, um, because there had been a civil war before that, the, the country had closed off, I mean, the, the government had closed off the border, so we couldn't even go into the province pre-tsunami. But post-tsunami, the government started to allow people to go there to do uh, relief work and things like that. So, um, yeah, I reconnected with, with the relationship with friends that were there and those types of things. Uh, we the, the first trip up there um, drove up with a, um, a truckload of uh, supplies you know someone had informed us the kinds of things that people were needing so we loaded up the truck with about five thousand dollars worth of um, just food and other types of supplies that we could take up and distribute to people in need um, we were going to connect with one of my friends there that was in one of the villages in bon near Banda Aceh and um, yeah drove a good 12 hours from Medan to there uh, yeah. overnight um, it wasn't the smartest decision I ever made because we, nope. we drove overnight and then spent one day. And while I was there, I got a call from um, Lori, from you, saying basically some of the disaster relief people were coming to meet with me in Maidan the following day. So I had to basically drive all the way back the next night. But this was kind of a, kind of a theme at, for the next year probably where yeah. um, just did a lot running on fumes and, mm -hmm. and doing not making wise decisions on how I treated my body and how I treated my time and my family. And, um, cause being an Enneagram too, <laughs> when you get in a situation where you're just able to serve and help a lot of people and it's like always in your face and you're always on, like it, it, it's very energizing. Yeah. Um, but you, yeah, I, I, uh, um, burned out pretty heavily, uh, after a couple of months, which was really yeah. challenging. What, like four months? It was like April. April was where it hit the hardest for yeah. sure, but I think I was already burning out. Micro burnouts. Yeah. <laughs> that was the it massive It was work, and that was kind of massive, massive when it hit in April. That was pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but before that, um, yeah. But this was an area of the world where, like, because of the Civil War, it had been closed off to a lot of other um, foreigners, yeah. foreigners being able to be there, but also it, it had dealt with 
a ton of atrocities that were being done to them by the Indonesian military yeah. and um, like we, we would sit there and have coffee and meals with our friends in their home you know they would just go through photo albums and just you know page after page they would just say oh that's my cousin um, they were shot and killed next page oh this is my other uh, cousin you know she'd actually been raped uh, by someone in the military next page oh this is my uncle um, he actually disappeared one night we've never seen him and it was just like they just would say it matter of fact like this was just their lives these types of things happened yeah um, and so they just they didn't have a lot of uh, um, outside influence or you know people uh, recognizing what was going on there yeah and so um, yeah being able to be a part of that was incredibly challenging because it wasn't a hard it wasn't an easy place to live it wasn't an easy place to go and serve Mm -hmm. um but man it it was it was worth it yeah so talk about the experience of um when you were helping in the tsunami and this is an area that had had so little help and they'd been um really mistreated by the indonesian military during the Well, the Civil War had lasted for, what, like 35 years. It was one of the longest-running civil wars in the world. So there had been just a lot of um, pain, a lot of difficulty. Um, You know, even, I guess, the Amnesty International had uncovered a bunch of mass graves early on after, um, you know, Suharto was stepping down and all that. But, like, so there had been years of this, you know, a lot of stuff, and then the tsunami hit, so there was just a lot of trauma. Mm. Um, and so what was that like just on a psychological level and talking to people about their stories and hearing about their pain? And um, and what was that like for you? Because these were a lot of your friends that yeah. you were walking alongside yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was super, it was just, it was incredibly hard. I mean, I, um, I felt like at the end of every day I was carrying trauma that everybody I talked to that day was carrying because one of the things we felt like we could actually do to make a difference and this was you know some trauma counseling um training that we had gotten was just allowing people to tear their tell their story and hear from them and um you know part of part of dealing with trauma is being able to share about the experience uh in a way that allows them not to have to keep re-experiencing it every time they tell it and so yeah we just wanted to 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 be an ear and to listen but man at the end of the day there was many times I felt like I was carrying their trauma and so we usually debriefed at the end of the day just to kind of share about the day where we were processing there was usually a lot of tears a lot of pain um, sometimes a lot of laughter I mean there was some of the craziest humorous stuff that would happen in the midst of this um, that would say I'd share it now and it would sound really dark like dark dark humor <laughs> yeah. because it just yeah it's something you just had to find ways uh, to laugh and find humor and stuff too, or you just, it, it would just get really, really heavy. Yeah. Um, so that, that part was, that part was hard. Um, but so meaningful too. Yeah. Well, um, you're the kind of person, and I think this is where you're really good as a leader is that when you help you, you give your whole self. I mean, some people lead by, you know, just with their brain, but you're you're a lot of brain and heart all together, and um, and I think that that can take its toll on on people's bodies and and their spirits, um, their souls. And so, 
Um, we probably will have you back on the podcast at another point when, <laughs> when we talk about how to take care of yourself. I'm sure it won't be hard to find. Yeah, that's right. But, um, but yeah, um, just as we're kind of finishing up this whole tsunami part of the story, I just would be interested to know when you look back on that, what were some, um, what's kind of the big lesson you took? Because um, I heard John Maxwell say that we, um, in crisis, leaders either step up to lead or they shrink back. And mm. I, I saw you really step up in that time. It was a difficult time, but you just, you led so strong. And, and at the same time, in crisis is where most of us learn valuable lessons in leadership. So what would you say? You kind of... Take you say that, so you, that, and you know you're saying it way more positively than I would say it because I'm pretty hard on myself. <laughs> you are hard on yourself <laughs> uh, during that season because I felt like uh, one because I didn't take care of myself well, I missed um, some incredible opportunities that um, that I feel like I I should have been able to meet because I wasn't taking good care of myself. Um, I think too, uh, I there were so many decisions having to be made every day. I mean, I, I mean I've shared this before. I mean, there yeah. was at one point, you know, very soon after the tsunami, we were living in a large house and there was mm-hmm. like 55 people in the house and, <laughs> you know, like literally 55 people in the house and I was in charge of all of it and I would cross the room and have 12 questions being asked and um, which was just overwhelming. I, I think, you know, there was a ton of leadership lessons that I learned. You know, one is just, you know, looking at learning how to scale things um, in a large scale operation like that, scaling yeah. it so that you have other leaders that can take stuff on, but you can't abdicate responsibility and leadership to other people. And that was some of the things I was doing as well. I would abdicate leadership to someone else because I felt like I, I, I was rushing that scaling mm. and then sometimes giving responsibility to somebody who I really needed to, um, manage and lead them well before really allowing them to take it. Yeah. Uh, I think too, I just had I needed to grow a lot in my area of, in the area of confidence as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that's somewhere that you're a ton stronger than I am. You're much more confident as a leader than I am. I second guess everything, yeah. and in disaster relief and tsunami work, when you're having to make decisions every day, mm-hmm. you're making the best decisions you can, and you need to be, you know, okay with the fact that you're going to make some bad calls, you're going to make some bad decisions. Um, but move forward with, with confidence, and then when you do, you know, mess up, you learn from it, and you, yeah. you pivot, and you you keep going. Um, I think I just had, there was just a lot of youth and greenness in me in that area, um, and so I think some of the big things that stand out to me during that time is uh, taking in crisis, taking care of of uh, yourself physically and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, prioritizing not forgetting your priority in your family your relationship yeah. uh, me as a father we had a you know one year old at the time um and then also just in leadership uh had learned some incredible lessons in um yeah just some of those things recognizing how to scale but also not being a making hard calls and doing them confidently and being okay with failing and owning it afterwards like hey that was a bad call but not like agonizing over it yeah i just was so like take everything personally when i made a mistake Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's just that's just poor leadership like you own it you take it but you don't sit there and like wallow in it and i think that's one of the things that i struggle in part of that's just that need for approval that i've always struggled with that i'm Mm -hmm. always trying to see that in myself um yeah and then also just that, you know, oh, second guessing everything. And sometimes you just make the best call and move forward. Yeah. 
Well, I know you're hard on yourself, and those are good lessons that we can all learn from. And not only are you Enneagram 2, but you're a wing 3. And I see sometimes that wing 3 and what you just described, that need for approval. But the gift in that, which I, as an Enneagram 8, I don't have, <laughs> is caring a lot what people think. And I think as a leader, that's it's a strength. It's your strength and your weakness. Mm-hmm. And we always make this joke in our family that your strengths are... Your weaknesses are actually strengths. It's not fair. <laughs> That's what our oldest child says. It's like that Jumanji movie where his... Oh, yeah. His, what was it? Or we said, strength is your weakness. Yeah. He, he's just too strong, so he's like... <laughs> so they put under weaknesses, too strong, or something like that. Like, wait, yeah. strength is your weakness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we all have a lot to learn, but um, that, those are really good lessons that... Um, I've, I've watched you lead, and I watched you lead through that time. Um, I've seen you really grow in that area, and you set a, a good example for a lot of people. And um, so, thanks for that. So, one of the things that you are involved with here now that we're in the Silicon Valley is called Echo Compassion. So, I'm curious to know. Could you tell us the story about how Echo Compassion started and also like what your involvement is and like some of the cool things that have gone on, I guess, during this time. And then I'd love for you to also share your hope and your vision for the future of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, so Echo Compassion uh, was started um, basically the week after shelter in place, like went into went into effect in here mid-March, right? in yeah. mid March, um, in the Silicon Valley, mid March, uh, twenty twenty, um, and actually it was the it was the vision of one of the pastors here, a guy by the name of Darren Alarde, one of our favorite people. I feel like every time I say his name though, like I gotta rag him because that's just kind of our relationship. <laughs> like he is the he's the biggest Filipino I've ever met. I usually refer to him as the Filipino Sasquatch, that kind of stuff because he's so big. But the guy he's is way just... more American than we are. <laughs> <laughs> he is a great guy and an incredible leader and um, has been and continues to be an absolute joy to work with. And I've had it. I've just learned a ton from this guy. But Echo Compassion was really was really his vision, and he. Um, he uh, convinced uh, the leadership team of the church that this was the direction that we needed to go during shelter in place, that we needed to have something called Echo Compassion, where we, um, part of it was creating a website called echocompassion.com. Um, and on the website, you could either sign up as a person that wanted to help others, or you would sign up as a person that needs help. So the idea is that we're, we're gonna part of those people up because we just recognize that there's a so often there's just so many people that are really do want to make a difference. They want to find opportunities, but honestly, they don't. A lot of times, they just don't have the time and um, expertise or energy to think through how can they really give help to other people. And so we wanted to uh, bridge that gap between uh, people who wanted help, people who wanted to help, and people who need help. Um, and especially we saw that right during shelter in place, there was going to be a ton of opportunities to serve. Um, and what I loved, uh, which I, I continue to love, is being a part of an organization, being a part of a church, that when things went completely chaotic with shelter in place, right? We had no idea how long this was going to last. You know, the, for, for many people, they're concerned about, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my kids for school? Now they're going to be at home. How am I going to get work done? 
um, the main focus of our church was how are we going to continue to serve people and echo compassion um, was a big uh, was a big part that so cool and I'd love for you to share some of the things that we did or echo compassion did during mm-hmm. these couple of months here when it was really kind of tough yeah absolutely I mean just when you look at uh, in the first three months uh, post shelter in place the the first three months after starting echo compassion um, we were just keeping track of some different data and things that were happening but one of the things that we tracked was how many people that we were able to serve and we wanted to be really conservative on how we uh, measured that because we didn't want to over exaggerate or anything but at the end we were able to serve uh, over 10,000 people which that alone is just incredible but some of the things that specific things that we did um, gosh there were just so many different projects I know on the connections team which uh, uh, Ryan Lopez and um, Joe Newton with uh, financial assistance both those guys did an incredible job in connecting people that came across the website that had needs um, they just continually uh, were had people you know that needed groceries they had lost their job they weren't able to figure out how they're gonna feed their families that week I might just remember story after story uh, one family that stands out was um, there was one uh, family that said they'd put in the need they didn't know if it would there, there was gonna be any need met and um, they just sent a message after receiving the groceries and they said uh, that the night before um, the father had realized he's only got $30 left in his bank and he has no idea how he's gonna feed his family that week and the next morning you know groceries showed up at their door and he was just in tears that yeah. he felt like um, honestly that God had answered his prayers um, so a lot of things like that delivering groceries you know just some of those one-off things that were just those connections things um, another big one which actually was on your team the development team there was a um, a number of people who were COVID-19 positive and they were having to be quarantined and they were being quarantined in a uh, small local hotel uh, it was about 14 is that right something like that around 14 different rooms 14 different individuals couples families um, I think it was 15, 14 different rooms something like along those lines I can't remember the exact number uh, but um, you know they're being quarantined for two weeks at least and you know they're not getting their room serviced um, you know it's hard for them to get food to the rooms um, they're not getting cleaned you know all that kind of stuff there was so no you, heat there was, there was no, no heat. heat they don't you know so anything getting like sheets towels any of that kind of stuff and um so uh your team actually had a number of people that uh went to costco and just purchased new linens purchased food uh, packets that they could you know have in their in their rooms those types of things and just those types of supplies that would help get them through uh those two weeks a huge encouragement for those individuals and families um on uh, the church partnership team which is what i ran um man so many different things uh but one really big one was uh, one of our churches that was um um that's a church start uh church plant the the lead pastor had a partnership with the local berkeley school district and that berkeley school district had reached out to him um, wanting to help with a project that was providing backpacks for under resourced families and um so we basically helped with some uh, with providing volunteers, help give some advice on how to, you know, raise the funds around that. And um, yeah, provided almost 3,000 
uh, backpacks to under-resourced family through the Berkeley School District was incredible. Yeah. Uh, same church. Uh, we, we parted with a number of different churches, but for some reason, these are two big ones that jumped out at me. Same Berkeley School District. Uh, they had a number of um, single moms who were going to be homeless due to some different things going on uh, with uh, losing jobs and those types of things. And actually, through that church, we were able to help support um give support to that church to be able to support two of the single moms that were going to be losing housing and to mm-hmm. give housing for them for a month. Um, yeah, so just a lot of amazing uh, experiences. And I, I just remember being um, so amazed, number one, at the generosity of people in that season yeah. um, in our church and others that gave so uh, sacrificially in order to serve during that time. And then, honestly, the hundreds of volunteers that just really wanted to help and yeah. serve. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you know, we didn't know when we're setting this thing up, right? Whenever you're starting something, you have no idea what the response is. People are, are people going to respond? Are they yeah. actually going to want to serve during this time? Are they actually, you know, people are afraid to lose, get out of their house because of the coronavirus, all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, it, it has been incredibly encouraging to see people serve and people give during that time and, and continues to. Yeah, I agree. I, I've been really amazed when it was scary when the, all this was starting to happen. We're in Santa Clara County, so we were the first county to shut down in the United States. So nobody knew it was happening. But around that same time, Echo Compassion was forming. And uh, we were stuck in our homes. We were afraid to go out. You know, it was like, what's going to happen? But we were able to partner with a lot of organizations mm. that were, you know, doing serving safely, you know, where you could go in with a mask and you know, wearing gloves, socially distanced, hand sanitizer, limiting the number of people there. And so just in small groups of people here and there, we, Echo Compassion has made a pretty big impact, you know, non-contact deliveries and people's, you know, in front of their doors so they don't even have to see each other. And um, there have been really surprisingly safe ways for us to reach out, even at a time when it felt very isolating. So I'm interested to know what is your hope for Echo Compassion going forward? Yeah, where are we going for the future? Um, I mean, I think a big part, we're still going to continue to be about serving the community. That's how we started. That's how we want to continue to yeah. do that. Um, and honestly, just get really better at recognizing what are the needs in the community? Um, what expertise can we bring? How do we give people an on-ramp to uh, serve other people? Um, an example would be just recently um, a project that we did uh, was something called the Hope Box. Um, we recognized that, man, you know, there's so many people that want to serve, but they, they don't know, like even the idea of delivering groceries, something like that, um, they, were, they were, might be struggling on knowing how to do that. And so uh, we actually decided to make it really easy for people uh, to serve and to, to give hope to other people because that's a major part of what I think <laughs> Uh, Echo Compassion needs to be all about. It's about bringing hope to their community. And so we created these hope boxes. And in the hope boxes, we just had some simple self-care type things like hand sanitizer, a a face mask, um, a scented candle, a a gratitude journal. Um, There's a couple other things in there as well. But it had plenty of space on the top of the box to be able to, for people to personalize it. And the vision behind it was Anybody in the church, and, and actually we had people that came and got boxes to give to people in our community that weren't even part of our church. Because we were like, look, if you're wanting to bring hope to your community, um, you can come get boxes and, and do this. We, we just want to create an on-ramp for people that makes it easy to bring hope and serve their community. So we had 600 boxes 
that we created. And honestly, I was so frustrated because at the end of it, um, I honestly think if we had created 1,600 boxes, we would have actually distributed that many boxes because yeah. there was so, by the end of it, we ran out so quickly. There were so many people that wanted to get boxes to serve their community, and they didn't. But the vision behind was that, that each person could take a box or 10 boxes if they had people in their community, people that they knew that they wanted to bless, that they wanted to bring hope to, that they knew were struggling during the season, and they wanted to, 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 to just bless them. And so they would get the box. They had already a few starter things in there that we'd put in there, and then they would add other things to it and just go and give that box to them uh, to bring to bring hope. I know recently I saw even photos of a number of different um, people um, in our church and our communities handing these boxes out to people. Even had one family that had connected with um, a homeless lady that they had uh, seen many times, they'd interacted with before, and they personally went and gave her one of these hope boxes, which just really touched my heart, seeing the photo, seeing mm-hmm. their daughter being a part of that so and sweet. bringing hope to this, to this young lady. Um, so yeah, I, I still think that's a big part of what we're wanting to do is to be hope dealers. I mean, we want to bring hope um, around us. I think that's one of the most important things that uh, we have to offer to our community as a church to other people. But we're actually, we're we're trying to make it where it's not just about people in the church serving. We're trying to get our people in our church to invite others in our community, whether you follow Jesus or, 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 you know, you've got no faith whatsoever, or you're just, you know, you're an atheist. I mean, you can come right us alongside and serve with us. And we want to create those opportunities in this next season of being able to not only be a blessing to our community by serving them, but also open up avenues for others in our community to join us in serving and meeting needs in our community. That's awesome. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, there's a lot of reasons to be down right now. And, you know, mm-hmm. you and I both sort of struggle with those kind of feelings during this time of it's not just cabin fever it's more our brains are doing weird things right now (laughs) I've read some things that psychologists have written about that and um it is tough it's tough to overcome your own struggle just to survive and thrive during this time with family and kids online school and working from home and houses in the Silicon Valley aren't big they're tiny and we're all kind of stuck here (laughs) together but hope is something we can um, we can fight for, and mm-hmm. I've seen you fighting for that. And it, you know, I'm a person of faith. You are also a person of faith, and our faith certainly drives our desire to ser- to serve our community, to love our community. Um, but you know, we don't have to only have faith to serve and love and mm-hmm. care for others and to reach out to others. I mean, I agree. I, I, we have both been blessed to know people of a lot of different religions throughout our lives. Hindu friends, Muslim friends, Buddhist mm. friends, Taoist friends, um, people who wouldn't really identify with any religion at all. Um, Singaporeans would call themselves free thinkers. Um, but I just think this is the kind of thing, echo compassion in particular is the kind of thing that this is something we can unite around is, is bringing hope. For us, it does come out of a, a place of faith. So I, I think of the verse that's at a lot of weddings where they, they read the First Corinthians 13 chapter about love. Um, but love isn't just for marriages. Love is for community. It's for our neighbors. And one of the verses in that chapter that I really like is um, these three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So when you bring hope, it, it always lasts. But behind hope is love, is that mm. you love people well. And, and I see you t- working hard for that, fighting for that, and bringing along others with you in that way. So, so kind way of to, to go. <laughs> Well, we have a couple of questions I'm asking everybody in this series. Um, 
And the first one is, you know, for people who want to help others and have dedicated their lives to making a difference in the world, sometimes it can be really hard to find a day off or mm. to rest. And so I, my question for you is, what do you like to do on your day off or how do you find rest? What is your way of finding rest? Well, I found I've got to find ways to rest even during the work week. And I would think one of those things that's uh, been really important that we've put into our rhythm is the walks that we take almost every day. Yeah. Uh, the days that we don't do that, I recognize mm-hmm. I, I've really missed something. So I, we try to um, do a walk around our neighborhood every day where we're just kind of catching up. Sometimes we're praying together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of exercise, mm-hmm. but a lot of it's just stopping a bit and and talking through some stuff and praying i mean so i think you've got to find ways to rest even throughout the week sometimes but yeah on my day off um i uh there's a book a couple of books i read recently that really impacted me one was the ruthless elimination of hurry Mm -hmm. and the other was john mark homer and the other one was um the emotionally healthy leader by Pete Scazzaro. Pete I can never say his last name right, Pete Scazzaro. <laughs> and in that, um, the one of the things that really stood out to me was um, he talks about Sabbath. And I realize that's probably a weird word if you're not somebody who's a follower of Jesus or you don't have a Christian background or something. But really, the, the big part about that conversation is having a day that is you're completely, you're not working um, it's a day that's meant to um, focus on things that bring you joy and worship. Because I'm a person of faith and a person that follows Jesus. And so I add things in that, in that day where I'm worshiping more and those types of things. But I try to make sure I completely unplug. I, I mean, I try to turn off all notifications on my phone, make sure I'm not getting text messages, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just completely unplug. I try to make sure I'm not doing any kind of housing tasks that day, washing clothes, um, I don't like to cook. If I like to cook, I might cook on those days, but I don't like to cook. So I try not to cook on those days or do dishes, those types of things, and just which means I got to plan ahead of time to make sure I can really block off that day. But that's been something on those days, just really trying to do things that really bring joy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those things tend to be time with my family. It tends to be um, taking, oh my gosh, going out and hiking. Every yeah. time I go on a hike in this area, I'm in the Bay Area for goodness sakes. It's we should be hiking like six times a week if I could. <laughs> Um, it's just a beautiful area, getting out in nature. Um, definitely recognize when I'm when I'm reading books mm-hmm. um, that nourish me. Uh, that's another thing that's really important on my day off. That's good. So speaking of books, my last question here is um, give us some resources that would be helpful to us from your perspective for those of us who are wanting to make a difference in the world or maybe just about being different. Um, it could be books. It could be podcasts it could be movies music um yeah people that you follow or find helpful yeah there's a number of things uh, it depends on really the category that we're talking about when i think when it talks about uh community type stuff there's a great book called when helping hurts um the author i'm going blank on right yeah, now we'll put it in, the show, we'll notes, put in the show notes but <laughs> when helping hurts um it's just one of those conversations that's it always needs to be out there. Are are you giving the type of help that's really going to help people, or are you uh, creating um, a bigger mess by the help that you're giving? Um, I think you know we're in this season of uh, you know the post. I mean, obviously for so many people, this has been going on for 
hundreds of years, but just the racial injustice and those mm-hmm. types of things. I've, I've tried to be reading a lot more, listening to more podcasts. I would say one podcast that I highly recommend um, that was among a list of a number of different ones, but one that really stood out to me was um, 1619. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a podcast that really impacted me looking at some of the different historical um, references and things like that that were very helpful for me. Um, and then I mentioned the two other books recently, The uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and The Emotional Healthy Leader. Um, both those have really impacted me recently. Um, another book, if you're somebody that's really, um, this would be more for people that are like kind of in the church and um, that are looking at like missions overseas and looking at, you know, making a, an impact among different um, nations. One book that I'm always recommending to people that's really impacted my life is a book by called The Insanity of God. Um, and that's a book that's really impacted me in my life and Nick Ripkin Nick Ripkin um so yeah that's just a few books oh leadership in the areas of leadership man there's just some great podcasts out there one I really enjoy is um uh Carrie Newhoff is one and then there's a recent one by our very own Andy Wood that's right that does an excellent podcast extremely uh practicable but practicable practical (laughs) that you can that's just immediately some things that you're able to to use right off the bat. So those are two uh, leadership podcasts that I would highly recommend. And you're a movie guy. So what I movies am mo- inspire you to want to just change the world? <laughs> like Rocky. Oh <laughs> you're my not gosh, a Rocky that's guy. so cheesy. <laughs> what are some movies that really inspire me? Oh my gosh. I'm like going completely blank right now. There's a lot of movies that have really inspired me. Um, we watched a lot about racial issues with our kids lately too. But There's a lot of movies on, on, on racial around racial injustice that we saw that were really impactful. That was, I'm forgetting the names, but there was we saw 13. Selma. Mm-hmm. Uh, the documentary Thirteenth was good. And the Brian Stevenson, the Just Mercy, Just Mercy mm-hmm. really good ones. Um, okay, there's a really random one that that you would hate. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you would hate. It's got Liam Neeson in it, and I love this movie, but it I don't think it did well at the box office at all. <laughs> but it was uh, called the I think it's called the Gray Wolf. Uh, but it was this fascinating film and all throughout the film there's just this picture of the there's just all this incredibly challenging uh, it's pretty grim it's not one I can recommend it's pretty graphic I mean it's pretty uh, like violent violent okay. um, and uh, but there's just all these different responses that people have related to with struggles difficulties stress and the world and you see it and all these different characters and the way they respond to the different situations mm-hmm. and then the character Liam Neeson at the end I mean the, the movie basically ends I'm going to ruin it if, you're, if you haven't watched it and I I don't even know if I, I want to recommend it cause, but it's one that really <laughs> it I mean, inspired it you. did inspire me because it was just like there he's in the scene in the end where He's about to be attacked. Sounds so cheesy. About to be attacked by a bunch of wolves, and he just at the beginning of the movie, he's actually suicidal. He's actually depressed. He wants to commit suicide. But at the end of the movie, when all of these challenges came up, Mm. he he sees himself ready with um, odds that look like there's no way he's going to survive this, and he's preparing himself to fight. Mm. And the picture that was inspiring to me from the film—I know it sounds so (laughs) ridiculous—but just that, how are you responding? to the challenges around mm. you. And I think, I mean, in the situation that we're in now, mm. um, I think my, I, I can very easily be the type of guy that just wants to get in the fetal position in the corner and start sucking my thumb and <laughs> woe is me kind of stuff. But I'm inspired by people who, when there are incredible odds against them, 
and they're ready to do the incredible hard work of choosing to hope when it looks like there is no hope. Mm. It's those kind of films that yeah. just really, uh, really inspire me. Yeah. So well, the Gray Wolf. Well, probably Liam not to the Gray Wolf, <laughs> but I've seen many movies that have inspired me. With you. we watched The Power of One with our kids. The not Power of One. That's it's an another oldie, good one. Yeah. It didn't didn't do well in the uh, Rotten Tomatoes category, no, but I thought but it was it's pretty good. It's a good, good. one, and it's um, we have middle schoolers and a high schooler, so it was certainly appropriate for them. This one person against all odds in South Africa during apartheid and deals with a lot of racial systemic racism in South Africa and mm. how even as a child you can make a difference and it's about unity and the power of one person but the power of a community being one together and unified that, that was really cool two other big films was that are super inspiring to me that came out at the same time one is called Silence oh. um, and the other one also a very intense <laughs> a very intense movie but oh my gosh and incredibly Andrew Garfield powerful. was in it yeah. Andrew Garfield was in both of the films that I'm it's thinking about of Japan Christianity and Japan right yeah, back in like the 1500s, something like yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's um, it's it's really powerful. But the other one was um, also Andrew Garfield. Dang it, I'm forgetting the name right now. Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. And both that was of these very films, graphic. They, they both came out around about the same time. Um, but they both are about these the same picture of people choosing to do what they think is right. Um, when there's incredible odds against them. And yeah. they're willing to sacrifice even themselves and their very lives to do what they think is right. And th- mm-hmm. those things are yeah. pretty stinking inspiring to me. Well, I you're inspired by those, but you also live a life of self-sacrifice for others. And I'm pretty sure that's why those inspire you in that way. Um, it is amazing to see all the things that God's done through you. I'm excited to see what he'll continue to do through you. And thank you, my very first guest. Jason Adams So Brown. honored to be chosen. <laughs> you have any parting words? Yeah, no. I'm just super excited that everybody on this podcast get to get to learn from you as well. I think you're a phenomenal <laughs> person. You're an incredible leader. Um, you're incredibly intelligent and inspiring. A great mom and a great wife and just a great person. So I'm really excited that every, all the other people get to finally those that maybe have never met you for now met you before um, get to learn from you and be inspired by you like I know I am. Aw, thanks, babe. <laughs> I would like to thank my very inspiring and helpful and just hopeful husband Jason Adams Brown for being our very first guest here on the A World of Difference podcast. Um, This first episode has been really special. I hope you've been inspired like I've been inspired. I know that right now during COVID, wherever you are listening in the world, we're all having a lot of conversations about how long this is going to go. Is this the new normal? What's actually happening? And so this is just a space where um, we can listen and learn from others and Jason has been really uh, not just sitting around during this time but pouring out his life to just be bringing a lot of hope to people in our community that um, where there's a lot of despair a lot of confusion a lot of um, just needing a helping hand at this time we we cannot do this by ourselves and so if you're listening to this and you are in need of help um, I would point you toward 
echocompassion.com, which is the resource that Jason was speaking about where we're trying to bless and help and serve those in our community. If you're wanting to help or if you are in need of help, either one of those, um, echocompassion.com is a space for you to connect in either of those ways. Um, but yeah, a lot of us are just trying to figure out what's going on and, and just do our best right now. But as you're in your conversations that you're already having with your friends, your family, your coworkers over Zoom, as it is probably going for you like it is for us at this point, I would just um, encourage you to, to kind of press into those, those questions and, and process with others um, just, you know, as we're trying to figure out what's happening. And I would encourage you to find out, just to do some research about, well, first of all, starting with your own family or roommates or people that you live with. Uh, what are some ways you can make a difference in their lives? Um, and then also just your neighborhood, your, your city, your community, and your nation. There are so many opportunities for us to make a difference and bring hope, especially during this time. This is a time to draw together, to be, um, just to, to recognize as human beings, we have an opportunity to think outside of ourselves, to think of others, whether it's people in our own home or in our own neighborhood or our own nation. And, and I would just encourage you to press into that. And I would love to hear how you're processing these conversations and the things that you're coming up with and how you yourselves are making a difference in the world. And you are not going to want to miss our next episode because I get to interview my older brother, Dr. Christopher Adams. For those of you who know and love him, you are in for a treat. And if you don't yet, please come get to know him next week. It's a really exciting interview. He is just an amazing person who has also dedicated his life for helping others in some really unique and inspiring ways. And I know you're going to love it. So tune in next time for the A World of Difference podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, take care of yourselves and your family during these days. We all need each other. Bye.